Hello to you all and season's greetings from the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, the premier North Wales-based, obscure and unfamiliar true crime-focusing show that seeks out tales from the UK and Ireland. I'm the creator and host of the show, Paul, the True Crime Enthusiast of the show's title, and it's fabulous to have you all joining me here today for what's the final show of 2018 from The Enthusiast. Now, December is a chaotic, chock-a-busy month for everybody, isn't it? And as this episode drops, it shall be right down to the wire for Christmas now. You know, those last crucial few days where it's time to get your last-minute gift-buying done, or start your shopping, as some people do. I can't understand why people do that. That's got to be why they sell shite on the counter at petrol stations, isn't it? Can you imagine? Merry Christmas, love. I couldn't really be asked going shopping for something half-decent, so I hope you like this windscreen ice-scraper glove and wind-up torch combo where the correct response would have to be, yes, thanks, the glove will protect me while I shove the torch right up your arse. No excuse nowadays with online shopping, is there? Thanks this episode go, of course, to the latest Patreon supporters of the show. That's Victoria Shaw, Dean Sanders, Emily Jones, Amanda Humphreys, AR, Wilma Schroeder, Marina Hogan, Catherine Green, the Murder Under the Midnight Sun podcast, Josie Miller, Louis Moir and Joe Westwood. I must get it right this week, Joe Westwood. And Sue, who's edited her pledge. It's much appreciated to all of you guys. It means the world and it really does help make the show. You too can join these guys for a very reasonable contribution and get yourself access to 11 bonus feature-length episodes and or other goodies and hear the tales of the Tinkersdale Woods Murder, The Samaritan and the Salvationist, or The Rotten Rose of Devon, to name but a couple of the Patreon episodes. Number 12 will be dropping on New Year's Day also, if you fancy a bit of true crime to combat your New Year's hangover. The link is as ever with the show notes, or it's the True Crime Enthusiast podcast on the Patreon site. You know the show logo to look for by now, I hope? But also, a special thanks very much this week to all of you listening. It's been an absolutely amazing year for the show. I think we've done 43 full-length episodes of the regular show so far, and 11 bonus Patreon ones have gone out. And if you guys didn't tune in to listen, then it would be me talking to myself in my spare room. And I'm sure there are already plenty of oddballs on this earth who do that already without me adding to it. The shares and retweets, the reviews, case suggestions, the kind words, your feedback constructive criticism and the helpful advice that's been given, well, it's all been taken on board completely, and I don't forget kindness like that. You all rule, and from the bottom of my heart, I thank you guys for helping make the show. Thanks also to all of the new friends that I've made in the true crime community this year, and fellow hosts who shows that I've loved hearing, I've enjoyed supporting, and watched them grow from strength to strength. Bring on 2019, and let's see if we can all top this one. So before I start to sound like Paltrow accepting an Oscar, you know, and I'd like to thank my mom and the president of Kiribati, the baby Jesus and all that shit, I'm putting myself back in the room and I'm bringing you the last episode of the year from the show. I'm having a short break as I know this episode is dropping before Christmas, but I shall be back very early in the new year. It's a good job I've got this season already plotted out and I can crack on to work on the rest of it. There are three tales for the episode this week, and all of them take place on Christmas Day. Two of them through a complete coincidence, 
taking place exactly the same day of exactly the same year, although they're unconnected and they're indeed separated by several miles and times. Now I debated whether or not to focus upon things so horrific on what is traditionally a happy time of year for most people, but then that would go against the maxim of the show that no one should be forgotten. And it isn't always a happy time for everyone, is it? And nor does crime take a seasonal break. I think these cases are important to highlight that. None of the cases included in the episode were ones that were familiar to me, and when I was researching cases that took place at Christmas, I was surprised just how many I found. As always on the show, I strive for the unfamiliar, and the three I've chosen out of this list certainly fell into this category for me. As always, the episode contains descriptions of crimes that some listeners may find disturbing or upsetting, so discretion is advised as always. Bearing that in mind, please join the true crime enthusiast for three tales of murder at Christmas. Now one thing that a lot of people tend to do at Christmas time is have a drink. With the extended holidays for some people, it's a chance to catch up with friends and family and let your hair down. It seems to be the time of year most where people can maybe drink to excess. I mean, you've got work's Christmas dues, you've got friends or family parties. Everybody seems to come to visit armed with a few beers or a bottle of wine. And police are constantly on the lookout for town revellers who turn into three-pint Rockies or late-night, early-morning drink drivers. Of course, as we all know, for many people, heavy drinking isn't just contained for Christmas time. It's a constant in their lives. Two such people were 58-year-old Geoffrey Carter and 57-year-old Susan Buckley. Susan and Geoffrey had been in a volatile on-off relationship for 27 years by Christmas 2013 in the West Midlands town of Walsall where they lived. As a matter of fact, we've touched upon the area of Walsall before on the show, back earlier this year in the second series of the podcast, as Walsall was the home for many years to Raymond Morris, the monster of Cannock Chase. Although the couple had never married and had no domestic setup together, and indeed both of them had separate families and children of their own, they were estranged from these, and had for many years been in a relationship together. Geoffrey hadn't worked for a number of years up to 2013, while Susan had had periodic employment working in factories and hotels or as a cleaner. But again, this was never constant, and the majority of their time was spent between each other's flats in South Street Gardens in the Walsall district of Palfrey. Susan and Geoffrey's pastime to fill their days was heavy drinking, and over the years both had developed a problem with alcohol. Several times both had come to the attention of local authorities and medical professionals because of this, occasionally each in an attempt to combat the alcoholism, but also and most commonly because both Susan and Geoffrey had the tendency to turn nasty when they had a drink. It's a sad fact that some people aren't nice and happy all singing or dancing when they've had a drink, they become argumentative and even violent. Both Susan and Geoffrey fell into the latter category. Neighbours and acquaintances of the couple who lived in the setback block of South Street Gardens were quite used to hearing their frequent loud arguments that could stem from the most trivial of things but that always seemed magnified because both had had alcohol. Occasionally these arguments would spill into physical violence and both Susan and Geoffrey were known to have assaulted the other on a number of occasions with differing levels of violence. 
This is obviously not the basis for a stable relationship, and if not the reason, then it's certainly a contributing factor in why each lived in separate properties. Geoffrey lived in the upstairs flat of number 23 South Street Gardens, while Susan lived further down South Street. They'd split up time after time, yet always gravitated back together in their dysfunctional pairing. It was described by Susan Buckley's son as a proper love-hate relationship. So since 1986, this love-hate relationship had meandered along in a cycle of periodic employment, row and split up, then get back together, but always underpinned with a constant of heavy drinking. 27 years passed like this, and Christmas 2013 found both Susan and Geoffrey unemployed and existing on benefits. Now if times are hard or funds or income is low, Christmas can be a time of year for the many that may especially add extra stress to any festering situation. We've already said before that it's a time of the year where if anything people drink more than usual and this was certainly the case with Susan and Geoffrey. That Christmas Eve they'd begun drinking around noon as was standard for the couple. They'd made the first of their multiple daily trips to the local convenience stores located along nearby Milton Street to buy alcohol that day at about 11am, and before loose women had finished, both were ensconced in front of the telly at Jeffrey's. They had several friends joining them throughout the day for a few drinks, attempting to bring the Christmas cheer. Guests who knew the couple, and their tendency to row violently, were later to say that the atmosphere seemed fine whilst they were there that day and there was no sign of any animosity. But whether it was after this first trip for alcohol, or possibly the second, even third, Susan and Geoffrey at some point that day began to argue. Now it could have been over anything. What exactly started it will never be known. But it continued to build and the bickering went on, until late on Christmas Eve, the tenant of the adjoining flat to Geoffrey, Khalid Shaid heard a furious argument coming from number 23, with Susan shouting and swearing at Geoffrey and him giving as good as he got back. Khalid had been one of the visitors earlier that day for a Christmas drink and had thought that all was fine, but it had obviously deteriorated by that time. I mean, these things can start over the most trivial of things and escalate just like that, can't they? So shaking his head at something that he was all too familiar with, Khalid went to bed. The row ended with Susan storming off home to her own flat in the early hours of Christmas Day. Now usually these things would be forgotten as quickly as they'd started and sure enough Susan and her son called around to Jeffrey's on Christmas afternoon to exchange presents. Again the drinking continued and at some point in the afternoon the couple began to row again. It's unclear if this was a continuation of the previous night's argument Perhaps this has been referred to, or some people like to point out that they're always right and have to have the last word, don't they? But researching the case for the episode, I was led to believe that this time they'd rowed over a Christmas gift that Geoffrey had gotten Susan that she either didn't like or had taken offence to. After both had been drinking for some time, they started arguing, and then it went a step further. Susan threw a coat and the offending Christmas gift at Geoffrey, and then attacked him at first battering him about the head and body, but then with a knife. She slashed him at least twice deeply across the arms, causing a 16.5 centimetre slash across the back of one arm, and a 6.5 centimetre cut across his other inner arm. 
Now this didn't kill Geoffrey, but sizable wounds such as these did bleed profusely, and combined with the beating that he'd received in the argument, plus the large amount of alcohol that he'd consumed up to that point in the afternoon, he was soon passed out in a stupor in the flat. And Susan could have left it there. I mean, I'm sure that this pair had rowed in the past 27 years about much worse, much more serious things. But something that day was different, and she took it a whole different level further. Because whilst he was passed out on his bed, Susan went around the squalid flat and gathered up a large bundle of clothing, which she placed on an armchair in the front room. When she was satisfied that she'd gathered enough, she used a cigarette lighter to ignite the bundle, and then left the flat. By 5.30pm a neighbour noticed smoke billowing from the top floor and called the emergency services. Fire crews were on the scene within minutes, met outside by 57-year-old Susan Buckley, who was seen covered in soot marks and screaming for help outside the flat. Taking her to one side, when firefighters broke into the flat to search it, they found Geoffrey Carter lying unconscious on his bed. Whilst the fire was controlled and extinguished, Geoffrey was carried out by fire crews and rushed to Walsall Manor Hospital, but he sadly never regained consciousness and was pronounced dead an hour later. A post-mortem later showed that Geoffrey had drunk a massive amount of alcohol. He was found to have 240 milligrams in a 100 milliliter blood sample and had died of smoke and gas inhalation as a result of the fire due to being passed out and unable to flee the inferno. But the post-mortem also found him to have two very savage, very recent knife wounds to his arms and a black eye. As Boxing Day 2013 came around, locals on South Street Gardens woke to the news of Jeffrey's death and the site of the area of the block cordoned off. A police presence guarded the door of the block of five flats, where at the back, a window frame had been smashed open, and forensics officers could be seen working inside the smoke-damaged top-floor flat. Locals spoken to following the fire expressed their sympathies, with Palfrey and Coldmore neighbourhood watch chairman Mohammed Rafiq saying, it was to great shock and upset to hear such an event had taken place where a person lost their life on a day which is filled with joy and happiness. Our thoughts are with the families. Another local resident said, It's a shock for it to happen so close to home. People generally get on around here. It is a multicultural area and people do tend to keep themselves to themselves. I heard the woman has been arrested on suspicion of murder which is very upsetting. I think we're all just hoping for this to be a simple and tragic accident. Susan had indeed been arrested on suspicion of murder following the fire, as police had attended the scene along with fire crews and an ambulance. She initially told police that she'd been passing her partner's flat when she saw the smoke, and that she'd gone back into the flat to try and get Geoffrey to leave, but he'd refused. The story changed somewhat later when she then claimed she'd gone back to Jeffrey's flat around an hour and a half beforehand at 4pm but had been outside smoking when the fire started. When police presented her with evidence that the fire had been started deliberately, Susan suggested that Jeffrey must have done it, claiming she would not be surprised if he'd set the fire as a cry for help. When he was passed out exactly where she told the fire crews where he would be in the flat. 
Police were having absolutely none of this, and on the evening of Saturday the 28th of December 2013, Susan Buckley was charged with the murder of Geoffrey Carter. The trial began just over five months later on the 1st of June 2014 at Wolverhampton Crown Court, where Buckley pleaded not guilty to murdering her partner Geoffrey. In fact, she maintained the story that he'd somehow started the fire himself and had taken his own life. At the opening of Buckley's trial, Prosecutor Gareth Walters QC said that the 57-year-old had claimed Geoffrey Carter had spoken about setting his flat on fire previously, but he also said that there were clear indications that it was not an accident, detailing the fact that Geoffrey was found lying on his bed and the severe cuts that he had to his arms. Mr Walters said that Buckley later admitted to police that she'd inflicted the cuts by slashing at him with a kitchen knife because he was aggressive towards her. Mr Walters said that several witnesses had told police the couple frequently argued, often violently, and Buckley had attacked and threatened to kill Geoffrey Carter many times in the past, having been seen to punch and slap Geoffrey on several separate occasions. A witness had described Buckley as being like a volcano during her 27 years with Mr Carter, while Buckley's own son had told police the couple had a love-hate relationship in which drink played a large part. Mr Walters then told the jury that Mr Carter's neighbour Khalid Shahid had told police about the argument between the pair that he'd heard in the early hours of Christmas Day, which Buckley had admitted to, claiming that they were both hammered. When the argument had subsided, Mr Walters continued that Buckley had then returned to her own flat, but had visited Mr Carter early on Christmas afternoon with his son, where the couple were again seen arguing. He told the jury... Her behaviour throughout the whole of this incident leads you to the inescapable conclusion that she murdered him. She set the fire, she cut him with a knife, and she intended to kill him. The court heard how Susan Buckley had left Geoffrey Carter with two severe knife wounds and a black eye, before setting his flat alight, leaving him to die from the fumes and smoke inhalation. A neighbour had called the fire service, and upon their arrival Buckley had told fire officers where her boyfriend could be found inside the flat, something that Buckley could only have known her boyfriend's precise location if she'd been present when the fire broke out. Even when presented with forensic evidence that suggested Mr Carter was passed out on his bed when the fire broke out, being around three times the drink-drive limit at the time of his death, Buckley maintained that Mr Carter had taken his own life. Investigating officer Detective Constable Jeff Neal told the court that Susan Buckley had told police a catalogue of lies after she was arrested following the fire, saying She tried to say Jeff set the fire himself. He had a 165 centimetre slice down the back of one arm and a 65 centimetre cut across the inside of his other arm. He also had indentations in his chest where someone rested a knife against him and a black eye which we could never account for. It would have been a tragedy for his daughter if she thought he killed himself when his death was at the hands of a third party. There were five other flats in the block. It was a total disregard for other people too. She had known that at least one of them was occupied by a family with two children. It was a deliberate ignition. She was clearly telling lies to police and fire officers. 
Robert Cowley QC defending made much of Buckley's substantial history of depression and alcohol problems to the court, laying the cause of her suffering at a desperate childhood. This had led to a gain in several previous criminal convictions, the court was told, for offences including wounding, assault occasioning actual bodily harm, violent disorder and criminal damage. The Crown alleged that on Christmas Day 2013, she'd added murder to this list. After a five-day trial on Friday the 6th of June 2014, Susan Selina Buckley was found guilty of the murder of 58-year-old Geoffrey Carter. Passing sentence, Mr Justice Waite told Buckley, Geoffrey Carter was, at the time of his death, through drink, incapable of assisting himself, though not otherwise vulnerable. This fire was started in a block of flats and it put others, the other occupants and officers from the fire service, at risk. By setting the fire and allowing it to take full hold, before you went out to alert other occupants of the flat, you made his death virtually certain. Geoffrey Carter had not been in contact with his family for some time, but his death came as a terrible shock to his daughter. The opportunity of seeing her father again has been lost. It's evident from what she said that the last month has been very difficult for her. On the 9th of June 2014, in the same courtroom, Buckley was sentenced to life imprisonment, with a ruling that she must serve at least 17 years before being considered for release. Just moments after hearing this, Buckley turned and smiled and waved to friends and family of hers who were in the public gallery before being taken down. Senior Investigating Officer Detective Inspector Gary Plant welcomed the sentence, saying, She'd always denied she was responsible for his death, and the jury quite rightly found her guilty. The 17 years she will have to spend in prison will give her a long time to reflect on what she did and the terrible consequences for Mr. Carter. Susan Buckley deliberately set fire to the inside of Geoffrey Carter's flat after she assaulted him following a further argument between the couple. By doing what she did, she took Geoffrey Carter's life, but if the fire hadn't been controlled as quickly as it was, the lives of others within the block could also have been taken. Pretty chilling stuff, eh? The next tale in our trilogy took place on the exact same day around about the same time that Susan and Geoffrey were arguing furiously before she stormed off home in the early hours of Christmas morning. For the second tale of the episode, we're off now to Edinburgh, the beautiful capital city of somewhere that we haven't yet visited on the regular show, Scotland. I have done a Patreon episode from up there, and fear not, in 2019, Scotland is somewhere we will be visiting plenty with some episodes that I've got in the pipeline. When police arrived at number 3 Glenure Lone in the Edinburgh district of Clermiston, Christmas Day 2013 was less than an hour old. They were there responding to a call from an emergency services operator, who'd taken a call from a distressed, confused-sounding female who lived at number 6 in the block of 9 flats, and who told the operator on the telephone just minutes before, I've just stabbed someone about seven times. I'm psychiatric. Can you take me to the Royal Edinburgh Hospital, please? 
So with an obvious sense of urgency, the operator had dispatched police and an ambulance to the scene, and both were at the scene, which is in the middle of a populated residential area, within moments. A number of police officers gained access through the communal residential door and made their way up the stairs to flat number 6. Knocking on the door, it was opened immediately by a female who was heavily bloodstained, her hands, face and clothing were saturated in it. Think Carrie at the prom, and it's like that. After staring almost vacantly for several seconds at police, she showed her bloodstained arms, one bearing the tattoo of Lucifer, the other of the Virgin Mary, before outstretching her hands and telling police calmly, The power it gave me was amazing. I have severe mental health issues. I need to go to Carstairs. We've been friends for ages, but this has been coming for ages. Directly behind the woman, just a short distance from the front door, was a heavily bloodstained male lying on the floor, who despite immediate medical attention from police officers and then paramedics who arrived almost at the same time, was pronounced dead at the scene. The woman, who was identified as 37-year-old Melissa Young, was arrested, handcuffed and taken outside to a police van, while the dead man was found to be 47-year-old Alan Williamson, her upstairs neighbour. Outside in the police van, as PC Kirsty Bell guarded Young, she heard her comment, It looks like murder. I cut his aorta. Scary stuff, eh? It was the culminating act in the chaotic, destructive life to that point of Melissa Madeline Young. For that Christmas, all she got was her liberty taken away from her and started on the path that would lead her to a life sentence. Melissa hadn't always been Melissa. She'd been born Richard McCabe in the city of Dundee in 1976 before growing up in Perth. Richard was largely friendless and a frequent target of bullies who favoured targeting the 6 foot 3 inch tall youth for his almost effeminate looks and manner. The reason? From the late 1980s, Richard had always felt different and uncomfortable in his own skin and identifying as a male and from the age of 14 or 15 had been dressing and identifying as a female. Now this can't have been an easy thing to do in 1980s Scotland where understanding and acceptance must have been almost draconian and as a result Richard, or Melissa as he liked to be known, was attacked and beaten up on a number of occasions by gangs of youths. Because kids in a pack adopt a pack mentality and can be horrible evil little twats can't they? We all know that I'm sure. Melissa began drinking heavily as a late teen and began using drugs also. This sad cycle continued for a number of years until 2002 where she underwent full gender reassignment in an operation. Melissa then moved to Edinburgh for a fresh start, but taking with her some demons. She still drank heavily and used a variety of hard and soft drugs. About a year after her operation, she began working at a sex sauna in Edinburgh's West Annadale Street, where she used the name Chloe and developed a turbulent but lasting friendship with a manager there, a man that we shall simply call Cher. Cher told the Daily Record newspaper in 2014, One of my staff at the sauna asked if her friend could come in for a job. I clicked right away from looking at her. 
She was so tall and had this husky voice. This is about a year after she'd had the op done on the NHS. But I don't discriminate, so I gave her a job. But Melissa soon became a volatile source of tension amongst the other women who worked out of the sauna, having run-ins with each of them in turn after starting fights. The girls there also claimed that Melissa would steal their possessions and would sell them to fund a drink and drug habit, which she was unable to mask while working at the sauna, even once threatening to kill Cher when he found a bottle of vodka that Jung had stashed in the toilet cistern. He said, Melissa shouted, That's mine! I said I was going to flush it and she screamed, If you do that, I'll kill you. Now you've got to be tough to run a sauna, so I stood my ground and she backed down. But you never knew with Melissa, she was like a tiger who could lash out at any moment. After nine turbulent months working at the sauna, in which she regularly boasted of taking groups of drunken men, sometimes as many as 13 at a time, to the back of a nightclub to have sex with her, in 2004, Young was dismissed from the sauna. She had an explosive row with Shea after asking him for a £3,000 loan for breast implants, which he refused. He then sacked her after finding out that she was operating as a prostitute out of her own flat and taking the customers from the sauna, an endeavour that led to her eviction when a client knocked on the wrong door by mistake and neighbours called police. Yet conversely, Melissa also had a fixation with the Catholic Church and regularly attended a central Edinburgh church. Several times she wrote letters to senior figures within the Catholic Church, including the Pope and Cardinal Keith O'Brien. Now perhaps this may have been some kind of attempt at a bit of salvation or something like that. But she was asked to leave the congregation after it became known that Melissa was touting for business nearby to the church by handing notes to drivers and passers-by, offering sex for £50. Because perish the thought that the Catholic Church may be involved in a sex scandal. I mean, I've never heard the like, have you? Shortly after a dismissal from the sauna and excommunication from the church, Young was jailed for 18 months for shoplifting. She'd been a serial shoplifter for many years and it finally caught up with her. The sentence didn't cure this as the short, sharp shock it was supposed to be. She remained a serial thief up to her arrest for murder and had thousands of pounds worth of stolen clothing and goods piled up in a stinking flat when she was arrested. On her release, she continued to work in prostitution from her flat and to abuse drink and drugs. Cannabis, nitrates, aerosol and alcohol were taken as much and as often as harder substances such as heroin and crack cocaine and this destructive cycle of evictions, arrests and prison sentences were repeated for crimes ranging from assault to arson, until by 2010 she found herself a flat, number 6, in the block of 9 flats at number 3 Glenure Lung in Edinburgh. It was soon after moving here that she met and befriended her upstairs neighbour from flat number 9, Alan Williamson a vulnerable adult in his early 40s who was unemployed and who lived alone with his dog. It's not reported as to any kind of relationship between Alan and Melissa other than a platonic one, although it is possible that due to her practice of prostituting from her home, that at some point there may have been a sexual element involved. It's also a possibility that Alan may have bought drugs from Melissa over a period of time, although this is unsubstantiated. What is reported is that by 2013 their relationship had taken, shall we say, 
a downward spiral. In July of that year, there was a reported incident where Alan Williamson was forced to jump from the first floor balcony of number six in fear for his safety after being imprisoned in Young's flat. She'd gotten him around there after wildly and falsely accusing him of stealing the keys to her flat on July the 18th and despite his protestations, had confined him against his will and threatened him with a knife. He was so afraid of what she may do that he jumped to safety from the first floor balcony of the flat to the garden below. Alan later told his Edinburgh City Council support worker Maxine Tate about the incident, describing Young as a fucking nutter. Perhaps Alan was a bit more forgiving than most people would have been, because myself, I wouldn't have gone anywhere near someone like that. If someone locks you in and threatens you with a knife so you have to do the whole Tom Daly thing over the balcony, then you stay away surely, even if she does live underneath you. Perhaps when it got to Christmas Eve 2013, and Melissa Young told him that she had a Christmas present for him, he decided that it is, after all, traditionally a time of forgiveness, and headed downstairs. He could also have been in the flat remonstrating with Melissa over a bizarre incident that had occurred about 11pm that Christmas Eve. An Indian takeaway was ordered by Melissa and was delivered to her address, although there was no answer to repeated knocks, despite the delivery driver clearly hearing someone talking inside the flat. When Young finally did respond, she denied that she'd ordered the food, claiming that her name was Chloe. She further told the driver to fuck off and tell your bosses to stop harassing me. I say. From a slurred and prolonged speech, the driver formed the impression that she was under the influence of drugs. So off he went, but minutes later, she phoned the same curry house and asked them to deliver the same order to Alan Williamson instead, saying it was meant for him, but he didn't have any credit on his phone to order. The same driver, Matthew Hutchinson, returned once again to the block of flats at 11pm, following a man who'd been out walking his dog into the building. Now this man turned out to be Alan Williamson, but he seemed confused when asked if this order was meant for him. When Matthew said to Alan, the lady Chloe downstairs said it was for you, Mr Williamson replied, yes that's Melissa, but that's not for me, so back went the curry once again to the takeaway. So it may have been due to this bizarre incident that Alan found himself downstairs in Young's flat to remonstrate with her, to have a bit of a go and say like, what the fuck now are you doing, you know, ordering takeaways that I don't want? It was most likely done as a deliberate ruse to get him down there. For whatever the reason, in the first few moments of Christmas Day 2013, Alan Williamson was downstairs in Young's flat, where less than an hour later, at 12.50am, he was pronounced dead by paramedics. Young had stabbed him to death with a six-inch kitchen knife, found later still bloodstained in the kitchen of the squalid flat. After her arrest, Young admitted the killing, asked to be called Chloe, and described seeing a very bright light and hearing voices and music in her head when she flipped and stabbed her friend Alan. She told interviewing officer Pamela Leishman, Melissa didn't help with prayers last night. I don't normally stab someone. She then compared herself to roided-up gun maniac Raoul Mote and pill-popping Hollyoaks character Nancy Osborne. Nancy Osborne, anybody? I haven't watched Hollyoaks since I was an impressionable youngster, shall we say. Good Sunday morning viewing. 
When the incident in July of that year was brought up, when she'd imprisoned Alan and threatened him with a knife, Young said that Alan had tried to make her out to be a pill-popping lunatic by hiding her possessions, including her house keys. On the 27th of December 2013, Melissa Magdalene Young appeared in private before Sheriff Michael O'Grady QC and Edinburgh Sheriff Court, where no plea or declaration was made, nor was any application for bail made by a defence solicitor, Eddie Wilson, and she was remanded to Cornton Vale Women's Prison in Stirling. A week later, a trial date was set for August 2014. When a trial began on 11th of August 2014 at the High Court in Livingston, Young offered to plead guilty to a lesser charge of culpable homicide by reason of abnormality of mind, but the Crown rejected her plea, and the full story of what had happened the previous Christmas was told to the court. Dr Michael Kane, not a lot of people know that, who had examined Young after her arrest, told the court that Young was on various prescription drugs at the time of the murder, inhaled solvents daily, drank to excess and had smoked heroin the morning before the alleged murder. A toxicology report revealed that blood taken from Young after she was detained showed traces of four different drugs in her system and traces of alcohol that placed her well over the drink-drive limit. He told the jury, She informed me that she wanted to be addressed as Chloe. She said, I mean, I've never stabbed anybody before. He added, she described a very bright light and voices in her head which were present in her multiple personalities and said, I was possessed, it was big possession. He said that Jung had also told him that the Archangel Michael had taken over her body and used her as an instrument of God to punish the unclean demon, saying, I've never done anything like that, I was disgusted with my neighbours, I want to kill the whole lot of them. He added, after saying that, she covered her mouth with her hand, asking if she'd said too much. The court heard how Alan Williamson was pronounced dead by paramedics at 12.50am on December the 25th, and then heard details of the exact cause of his death. The post-mortem reported that Mr Williamson had suffered a total of 29 stab wounds from a 6-inch blade, several that had caused injuries to his left lung and heart. There were 12 to the left side of his chest, 12 to his left upper and 5 to his left lower arm. But the largest wound, which was more of a hack really, was located on his chest and measured 7.3 centimetres by 3.8 centimetres. The knife wounds to his torso had also damaged his ribs and penetrated his diaphragm, injuring several other internal organs. One of the injuries on his leg had sliced through a major artery while another was three and a half inches deep. The jury then heard that Young had made two 999 calls in close succession in the first few minutes of Christmas Day, the first to say that Mr Williamson wouldn't leave her flat, and the second shortly afterwards to say that she'd stabbed him about seven times. Given evidence in her own defence, Young admitted, The knife was inserted into him by me. I don't accept it was 29 times. Bit of a miscalculation there. I mean, Young even claimed that she was the victim of a police vendetta and suggested in a police interview that Alan must have caused the other wounds by stabbing himself when he was lying in a hallway. Some people really do live in a bloody dream world, don't they? 
When police arrived at her flat following this, Young, with her hands and clothing covered in blood, told them, The power it gave me was amazing. I have severe mental health issues. I need to go to Carstairs. We've been friends for ages, but this has been coming for ages. And the reason that she gave for the trigger for killing Alan, which had been coming for ages, you know what the reason was? Because he'd rejected Young's Christmas presents to him. Yes, I kid you not. Young claimed that she'd presented him with the gifts, a pair of unisex trainers and the 2014 Sun Page 3 calendar. But Alan didn't want these and he rejected the presents outright. Now I wouldn't be asked myself about some trainers that I hadn't chosen because I think that's a bit of an odd gift to give to be honest. And the least said about anything to do with the Sun, the better. But they were, after all, unwanted gifts from someone that he wanted absolutely nothing to do with, who he was indeed frightened of, and so he understandably told her where to go. According to Young, this cost him his life in a frenzied and bloody attack. Young said if he'd accepted the gifts from her, she wouldn't have stabbed him. Six psychiatrists who had examined Young between arrest and trial all gave evidence, with each agreeing that she showed clear signs of a personality disorder. One psychiatrist, Dr. Kahn, who was instructed by the defence, diagnosed a mental illness, namely schizophrenia. But summarising the evidence, the trial judge, Lord Boyd, concluded that the general impression of Young that one was left from the evidence of all the psychiatrists, Dr. Kahn accepted was of someone who was manipulative and prone to using psychiatric symptoms as a means to obtaining an end. After a five-day trial on the 16th of August 2014, Melissa Young was found guilty of the murder of Alan Williamson. Passing sentence, Judge Lord Boyd told Miss Young that she'd been convicted of a cruel and wicked attack. He said, Having murdered him, you set about trying to persuade health professionals that you were suffering from diminished responsibility. While it's true that you have a severe personality disorder, it's clear it played no part in what happened that night. You showed no remorse. In fact, you told this court that you were indifferent to his death. He said it would be for the parole board to decide whether Miss Young should be released on licence, if ever. The sentence was backdated to the 27th of December the previous year from when she'd been remanded in custody. Following the verdict, Detective Inspector Grant Johnson, who'd led the inquiry, said, Melissa Young carried out a violent attack on a neighbour and the severity of the injuries inflicted led to his death. Officers in attendance quickly detained Young and at no time was there ever any risk to other members of the public, although this incident did shock the local community. The length of sentence handed down today reflects the violent nature of this offence. And Young was back in Stirling Sheriff Court barely a month after sentencing to answer a charge of assault. While she was on remand at HMP Cornton Vale, Young had attacked and bitten a female prison officer in the stomach in June 2014, drawing blood. Young had lunged towards the prison officer, Louise Henson, had seized her and pulled her down by the hair, causing her to fall to the floor. Young had then lay on top of her, kicked and struggled with her before administrating the bite. An allegation that Young assaulted a second female warder and bit her on the body, also causing injury, was dropped by the prosecution. Defence agent Eddie Wilson told the court, 
there is a substantial medical health background as she's transgender. At the time this happened, it was leading up to her trial, it was a time of stress for her, but in no way does that excuse her conduct. She is remorseful for her actions. I seriously really doubt that she was, don't you? Sheriff Kenneth McGowan sentenced Young to a further six months imprisonment for the assault and she was returned to continue her sentence. An appeal against a murder conviction was heard and refused in January 2015, which tried to mitigate the sentence as inappropriate, claiming that Young would be vulnerable in prison due to her gender reassignment. However, after considering the trial judge's actions, Lady Smith, the Lady Clerk of Colton, rejected the appeal. An extract from the summary of the appeal findings is as follows. The trial judge properly took into account the appellant's previous record, which included a number of assaults and breaches of the peace, theft and willful fire-raising, for which she had served periods of imprisonment. The trial judge considered that the evidence demonstrated that the considerable violence was not spontaneous and included a total of 29 stab wounds. He concluded that the appellant intended to use extreme violence and we consider that he was entitled to do so. He also noted that the appellant has shown no remorse at any point and stated that her evidence was quite chilling. The whole focus was on herself with no thought for a victim. No submission was made to the trial judge that the appellant was, because of her gender reassignment and mental health problems, more vulnerable within the prison environment. He did note that the appellant had been moved from Sorton to Court and Vale whilst on remand, but according to the report from the senior charge nurse provided to us for the appeal hearing, the appellant was successfully transferred back to HMP Edinburgh. Her mental health has remained stable and she is coping with prison life. She does not have a severe and enduring mental health diagnosis, and I have never seen any evidence of psychosis. She does suffer with a complex personality disorder with several personality disorder traits. The overriding personality disorder trait, in my professional opinion, is borderline personality. She has remained on medication whilst at HMP Edinburgh and engages well with the whole healthcare team. So Young was ruled as bad, but not mad, despite her best efforts. Melissa Young continues to serve her life sentence to this day and is not eligible for release until 2034 at the earliest, when she will be 57 years old. Whether that will be spent in the prison system or in a secure hospital if her mental state deteriorates remains to be seen. Her true reason for killing Alan Williamson, if it wasn't on the orders of an angel, remains a mystery. Now I know that both of these cases have been awful and truly horrendous, aren't they? But I think that I've saved the worst case for last. It's also the most recent of the three, taking place in the city of Bradford in West Yorkshire, back in just 2016. We deserve happiness, James. We deserve a future. That was the closing line of what Bradford Crown Court heard in June 2017 was a harrowing and heartbreaking letter that was found at the scene of a murder so barbaric it beggars belief. Hardened detectives were appalled at the savagery of the crime, the Christmas Day murder of a 39-year-old mother of two. What made the crime even more saddening and sickening is that the victim, Nicola Woodman, 
was expecting a baby at the time. She was brutally murdered by the father of her unborn child, James Hutchinson. Now as I do when I'm researching any of the cases for the show, I do a cursory search on Facebook for persons who are concerned in the cases that I feature. Sometimes they're on there and it's not to be a ghoul or disrespectful, but seeing a person's social media can help to build some sort of picture into the person's life and it adds touches of colour to the narrative. So I managed to find Nicola's page and in truth I was a bit surprised to find that the account is still active and available through an online search. It's not been taken down, or, nor does it appear to have been made into a memorial page. Among the happy pictures of children playing, there's a picture of Nicola posing with a young child on a summer's day out somewhere, and one other picture taken in November 2014, a picture of her posing on a night out with a man who's also smiling, James Robert Hutchinson. Both of these photographs show Nicola to be a pretty smiling mother of two. Just over two years after the latter photograph was taken, however, Nicola was dead. She was killed horrifically by the same smiling man in the same photograph. A native of Bradford in West Yorkshire, 37-year-old Nicola had met 40-year-old James Hutchinson in 2014, and they'd begun a relationship. Perhaps it was a case of... Now this is something I will never understand or even begin to get my head around why people do. An attraction to bad boys and general wrong'uns, but Nicola became totally besotted with Hutchinson. A man who by 2016 had already amassed no less than 40 convictions for serious criminal offences, including violent disorder, grievous bodily harm, actual bodily harm, affray and criminal damage. He was also a habitual user of hard drugs and alcohol. Yet Nicola, a mother of two children, Jack and Chloe, and an NHS worker, saw past all of this. She invited James Hutchinson into her life and began a relationship with him. He in turn treated her appallingly. He was violent and controlling from early in the relationship. And just a few months after they first started seeing each other, he was cautioned by police after a violent altercation between the pair following a night out had resulted in him dragging Nicola along the street by the hair. Neighbours of Nicola's in the set-off cul-de-sac of Bradford's bank home court got used to regular disturbances involving the couple and collectively formed the opinion that Hutchinson, who lived nearby on Bradford's Holmwood Road, treated her appallingly. Not only did he always appear to be drunk whenever they saw him, he was also an abusive layabout. If he didn't sound appealing enough already, Hutchinson also had a consuming addiction to various Class A drugs, and relied upon Nicola's wages from her NHS job, sponging off her to feed his expensive heroin and crack cocaine addiction. Now a destructive relationship like this will crack and can only really go one way, and within two years it was at breaking point. There'd been periods of peace within those two years, mostly at times when Hutchinson would be locked up for various criminal offences. The autumn of 2016 was one such time when he found himself remanded in prison for another offence of assault, but he was released on conditional bail in mid-November of that year. Part of his bail conditions were to live at his uncle's house in Holmwood Road, Bradford, and to be there on a curfew between the hours of 7pm to 7am. 
but Hutchinson paid little regard to this and would often flaunt it to go and stay with his partner Nicola just a mile away at her home in Bankholm Court. One such time was Christmas Day 2016. Since Hutchinson had been released on bail, the couple had obviously celebrated in being at liberty because Nicola found out that she was pregnant. It's unclear exactly how long she'd known, but she also took a look around at her surroundings and relationship at that very moment. The once happy home was now squalid. She had no money due to Hutchinson's drug and drink habit, and Christmas was right on the doorstep. It was then that Nicola sat down and wrote a heartfelt letter to Hutchinson. She spoke of her deep and unimaginable love for him and how much she needed him, but said that she'd been left penniless with nothing and felt worthless. She said that they had no gas, not a scrap of food in the house, and the electricity was about to be cut off. The letter went on. We live like tramps and I hate it, James. I've lost myself and I've lost you. I put myself completely at your mercy. We deserve happiness, James. We deserve a future. This letter must have been a last-ditch attempt to clarify and express everything that she was feeling and to try to get the man that she loved to change, hoping that perhaps news that she was expecting his baby may do this. She even had the positive pregnancy test to show him and was saving it for Christmas Day. What actually happened was the stuff of nightmares. When Hutchinson came around to Nicholas that Christmas, he wasn't in the best frame of mind. Somewhere over time, perhaps just that day, perhaps over a period of time, he'd worked himself up into a seething rage and convinced himself that Nicola had cheated on him and was having an affair. That Christmas morning, he and Nicola had spent the early part of the day visiting relatives of both of them who lived nearby before heading home. Nicola's children were spending Christmas with their father that year, so in the house at Bankholm Court were just Nicola and James Hutchinson, and by that afternoon, Hutchinson was already feeling the effects of a cocktail of heroin and crack cocaine that he'd taken earlier that day, which had been washed down with a bottle of vodka for good measure. The row began in the front room of Nicholas' house when she told him she was pregnant. In his statement to police later, Hutchinson said that he challenged Nicola about her supposed infidelity that afternoon, but she denied it, because there was absolutely no substance whatsoever in his deluded belief. Nicola had been nothing but faithful and devoted to Hutchinson, yet he couldn't see this or believe it, and he kept on accusing her and her repeated denials only enraged him further. He told police, People just snap, you know what I mean? She was six weeks pregnant, I was only out of prison for, I was in three weeks. Although she repeatedly denied it, I told her, It's gone too far, my head's fried by now. Snapped is an understatement. The following contains disturbing descriptions of a violent attack. The couple began scuffling after Hutchinson attacked Nicola and he quickly managed to overpower her and fasten her hands behind her back with a nearby length of electrical flex. Nicola managed to break free from this and attempted to flee from the house but Hutchinson caught her and beat her severely. With Nicola lying beaten on the living room floor he then retied her hands behind her back 
and over the period of a prolonged attack that lasted nearly a full hour, attacked and killed her with two kitchen knives, his hands and feet, and a pickaxe handle. A later post-mortem was to find that Nicola had no less than 102 visible injuries, including extensive severe bruising to the head, face and body, shattered teeth and a broken jaw, a broken nose, defensive injuries to the hands and forearms, and at least 24 stab wounds inflicted with two different kitchen knives. A large concentration of these were aimed at the left side of Nicola's chest, and at least one of these wounds had pierced her heart. After the murder, Hutchinson then left Nicola's battered and mutilated body on the living room floor, and then ransacked the house from top to bottom, trying to find evidence to justify his mistaken suspicions, such as a secret phone that Nicola may have had, or traces of a secret lover that may have been left lying about the place. He found absolutely nothing, because as we've said, Nicola was nothing but devoted to him, and there was nothing to find. Ignorant of the carnage that he'd just committed, Hutchinson then went to bed and slept off what he'd taken that day, leaving Nicola lying downstairs on the living room floor. Nearby to her body was the positive pregnancy test and the unopened letter. He hadn't even bothered to read it. Boxing Day came around and Hutchinson, again still uncaring and incomprehensible of what he'd done, stepped over Nicola's body, retrieved her car keys from the kitchen and then headed out to buy methadone, heroin and cocaine in the Holmwood Road area of Bradford. Upon his return to the house, he made sure that he had his fix and it was only sometime as the afternoon wore on that the enormity of the situation must have dawned upon him. At 4.17pm, Hutchinson rang the 999 facility and told the operator who answered, My partner's been stabbed. She's been there 12 hours. I think she's dead. Emergency services were dispatched to the scene and an ambulance arrived just three minutes later at 4.20pm. They forced entry to the property and discovered Nicola lying on the living room floor, where she was sadly pronounced dead at the scene. Police had also been dispatched to the address following Hutchinson's 999 call, but he was nowhere to be found. It transpired later that he'd waited in Nicola's car, which was parked further along the cul-de-sac, and as soon as he'd seen the emergency services arrive, he'd driven off. Why exactly he did this after contacting emergency services is unclear. He must have known that there would be a manhunt for him, and this isn't some sort of master criminal with a plethora of false identities and a new life waiting for him. He's just a drugged up evil thug. So what he'd hoped to attain from fleeing is unclear, mystifies me really. With police knowing from the off exactly who they were looking for, Hutchinson was found asleep in the car a few miles away in the early hours of 27th of December 2016 and was arrested. During an interview, Hutchinson told the police he believed Nicola was having an affair and relayed to them the events of that Christmas day. He'd instigated an argument over Nicola's supposed infidelity which had resulted in him tying Nicola's arms behind her back with electrical flex. He said that he jabbed at her chest with a knife and then hit her several times with a wooden axe shaft before leaving her to go and purchase drugs. On his return, Hutchinson stated that she was cold and stiff, yet he still did absolutely nothing, 
It was only later on the 26th of December that he finally decided to call for an ambulance. It was when he was asked why this was that Hutchinson made the claim, I just zonked out. As Hutchinson was charged with a murder, back at Bankholme Court, several floral tributes could be seen pinned to the wooden fence outside the cordoned-off property. Attached to one bunch of flowers was a note that read, My darling daughter Nicola, love you, R.I.P. Whilst another, seemingly from the victim's two children, said, For my mum, love you, gonna miss you, R.I.P. Jack and Chloe. 42-year-old Hutchinson appeared before Bradford and Keithley magistrates charged with the murder of Nicola Woodman on the 29th of December 2016. Hutchinson, dressed in a prison-issue light grey jumper and light grey tracksuit bottoms, spoke only to confirm his name, address and date of birth during a hearing that lasted less than a minute. He didn't enter a plea to the murder charge. Neither the prosecutor nor Hutchinson's legal representative spoke during the hearing and no details of the circumstances of Miss Woodman's death were given to the court. All they were told is that she died sometime on Christmas Day. Andrew Eastall, the chairman of the magistrate's bench, remanded Hutchinson in custody to make his first appearance before a judge at Bradford Crown Court the following day, before he was led away to the cells in handcuffs. The following day, Friday the 30th of December, Hutchinson appeared at Bradford Crown Court through a video link from Armley Prison in Leeds, where he'd been taken the previous day. The public gallery of the court was packed with Nicola's family and friends, and a commotion erupted when Hutchinson appeared, sat down and nodded and pointed at the TV screen. Prosecutor Dave McKay told the court that Hutchinson had been sent on a charge of murder from Bradford and Keithley Magistrates Court the previous day. Although Mr Justice Hatton QC said that he was obliged to consider bail, he concluded that he would be remanding Hutchinson in custody. No formal application for bail had been made by Ashok Kular QC for Hutchinson anyway, and the plea and trial preparation was set for January the 27th. Hutchinson once again spoke only to confirm his name and thank the judge at the end of the brief proceedings before he was remanded in custody until that date. With that, several members in the public gallery broke down in tears, while some members of Nicola's family and friends of hers had wept throughout. At Nicola's sombre funeral, which was held in early January 2017, the family invited donations in lieu of flowers to go to Behind Closed Doors, which is a Leeds-based charity that supports people who find themselves in abusive relationships. It works to give advice on spotting the signs of domestic abuse in relationships and a link to the charity for those interested in learning more about it, perhaps even get in touch or supporting them, can be found with this week's show notes. When the trial preparation hearing came around on the 27th of January, the court was again packed with friends and family of Nicola, some 20 in total, and a ruckus erupted in the public gallery that caused a number of visibly upset people to leave when the trial date was announced for June the 26th, 2017. When Mr Justice Thomas inquired as to the cause of the disturbance, he was told that June the 26th would have been Nicola's 40th birthday. He offered his sincere apologies for the coincidence, but stressed that the date required to be fixed due to the custody time limits. 
Hutchinson appeared at Bradford Crown Court for trial on Monday the 26th of June 2017, where he pleaded guilty to the murder of Nicola Woodman on what would have indeed been a 40th birthday. Handcuffed to a prison officer in court to prevent him from self-harm, Hutchinson sat with his head down, not once glancing towards the public gallery as the details of the murder were outlined to a courtroom packed with Miss Woodman's family and friends, some of whom wept openly. The court heard how Nicola Woodman had suffered at least 102 external injuries, including 24 stab wounds, during an attack which involved the use of two kitchen knives and a wooden pickaxe handle. When her horrifically mutilated body was discovered at the house on Boxing Day, police officers also found a positive pregnancy test kit nearby, and DNA analysis had proved that Hutchinson was indeed the father of the unborn child. Prosecutor Jonathan Sharp QC told the court that in his mistaken delusion, Hutchinson believed that a loyal Nicola was having an affair, and that a cocktail of delusional jealousy was festering in his mind. He said, It is not in dispute that when he attacked Nicola Woodman, he had a settled intention to kill her. Either while he was in custody or shortly afterwards, he began to become obsessed with the idea that Nicola was being unfaithful to him. The prosecutor told how there was absolutely no evidence to justify Hutchinson's delusional jealousy, and he'd not even read the heartfelt desperate letter written by Nicola in which she expressed her love for him, that she needed him, and her frustration with his behaviour. It was simply left lying unopened by her body, alongside the positive pregnancy test. Mr Sharp then read from Nicola's parents, moving personal victim statements to the court, in which they spoke of their unbearable loss. Her father, Arthur Woodman, described how he'd lost a beautiful person and how sickened he was at his daughter's death, likening it to a hammer blow, and said how Nicola had paid the ultimate penalty for staying with Hutchinson, expressing his absolute hatred for him. Nicola's mother, Joyce Bird, said that her tragic, horrific death had left a massive hole in their lives. She said Christmas would be extra hard because that was when they lost their daughter and how much the family missed her. I can't function or even think straight most of the time. I will never forgive him, she added. Hutchinson's barrister, Michelle Colborne QC, suggested that the pregnancy test had tipped her client over the edge and further, that the only mitigating circumstances were that he'd admitted his guilt at the earliest opportunity. As Judge Jonathan Durham Hall QC sentenced Hutchinson to life imprisonment with a minimum of 23 years to serve before ever being considered for release, and that would be only if the parole board deemed it was safe, he told him, This is a classic case of a good woman who fell in love with a thoroughly bad man. You sponged off her, and she loved you to the bitter end. You are not ill, you are wicked. The attack was frenzied, it was cruel, it was with a ferocity that defies belief even in the hardened experience of this court. You say it took an hour, it must have been a nightmare and a lifetime for Nicola, and she must have known exactly what was happening. Hutchinson was then taken down to begin his sentence, expressing no remorse, or even acknowledgement. 
Following the verdict on the steps of Bradford Crown Court, Detective Chief Inspector Stuart Spencer of the Homicide and Major Inquiry Team said, At 4.20pm on Monday the 26th of December 2016, the ambulance service were contacted by a man who we now know to be James Hutchinson. He stated he was the partner of Nicola Woodman and that somebody had been stabbed at their home address. Hutchinson also stated that the body had been there for over 12 hours. Police attended 16 Bank Home Court, Holmwood, Bradford, and found the badly mutilated body of Nicola Woodman. Hutchinson was located the day after and arrested for Nicola's murder. During an interview, Hutchinson stated that on Christmas Day, together with Nicola, he'd visited his relatives nearby. Both left sometime that evening and returned to their home address. An argument then ensued, instigated by Hutchinson. Hutchinson tied Nicola's arms behind her back with electrical flex. He said he jabbed at her chest with a knife and then hit her several times with a wooden axe shaft. He then left her to go and purchase drugs and on his return stated that she was cold and stiff. Later on the 26th, he finally decided to call for an ambulance. In total, Nicola suffered 102 injuries to her body. She'd been stabbed at least 24 times. Eight of those were aimed at the left side of her chest and eight were defensive injuries to her arms. She'd suffered a sustained violent attack with extensive sharp and blunt force injuries to her head and body. Hutchinson's callous and calculating actions can only be described as monstrous. Nicola's family are understandably overwhelmed and devastated by grief. I'd like to praise Nicola's family for the strength and dignity that they've shown throughout and hope that in some small way, the sentence imposed upon Hutchinson today may give their family some satisfaction that justice has been done and whilst it can never bring Nicola back, help them begin to move forward with their lives. Nicola's family are now facing their second Christmas without her. How on earth do you even begin to pick up the pieces from things such as this? Buckley, Young and Hutchinson. Some real, real horror there, isn't there? And how many of them had you heard of? I didn't know any of these cases. And isn't that quite tragic that horrific crimes such as these depicted in this episode aren't at the forefront of someone's mind? I'm sure that the people concerned with each, the families, the neighbours and loved ones of the deceased, well, they'll never for a second forget. But the wider general public probably won't remember them. And I think that's very sad and very telling, which is why I choose the cases for the show that I do. I boggled at the mindset of each of these three. I mean, what kind of mindset do you have to have to deliberately start a fire, knowing in all likelihood that it would kill the incapacitated occupant of the property after you'd slashed and stabbed him, I add, with total disregard for the other people in the block that could quite as easily have died? or to cause 102 injuries using not just your fists and feet, but two knives and a pickaxe handle to your pregnant partner, because you convince yourself that the baby she's carrying is the result of an affair, or to lure a vulnerable person to your flat by either false means or causing trouble, with the sole intention that he never comes out of there alive, and then claim some bollocks that an angel had possessed you to do it. I know substances play a role in each of the cases, either abuse of alcohol or hard drugs, but 
I don't think you can solely lay the blame at the booze or the gear, can you? I mean, plenty of people get pissed at Christmas, plenty of people use hard drugs at the same time, and plenty of people are habitual users of both. But not all of them brutally murder people like we've heard here, do they? Don't get me wrong, I mean, being ripped to the tits on whatever or hammered won't help to calm a row, but I do believe that the three killers we've heard about in the episode had the something about them as so many others that we've previously met on the show here has, to have done what they did regardless of being under the influence. All three had a previous history of violence and several criminal convictions to support this. None of them seemed to have any remorse about the horrific crimes that they'd committed either, nor the families that they destroyed in the process through their actions. And each is undoubtedly where they belong today, a thought that I hope looms very heavily upon each in the run-up to the festive period. There are countless other people who the actions of Buckley, Young and Hutchinson will loom heavy upon forevermore. So I debated long and hard about the inclusion of these three cases for the episode and I have to stress that I am in no way trying to glorify anything nor am I sensationalising anything because it just fits in for the theme for this time of year. I don't have the disregard for someone's life to choose their tale just because it suits for a themed episode. There are many horrendous cases that I found out about that I could have included, so much so that we could be here all day hearing about them, and I'm quite sure that some of these may be covered by some of the other shows in the genre this year, but nor are they meant to put a dampener on anyone's Christmas. I mean, it's par the course with a true crime podcast. Things get a bit disturbing and there's no such thing as a nice crime, is there? They're highlighted simply because no one deserves to be forgotten. And if you guys take anything from this episode, I hope that it's thoughts of Nicola, Allen and Jeffrey and their families, rather than Hutchinson, Buckley and Young. And that, you wonderful lot, is a wrap for 2018 on The True Crime Enthusiast. Thanks once again everybody for your very kind support this year and for making the show what it is today. Don't worry, I'm not going all Gwynny again. I'm just wrapping up and saying thanks. Time for a short break over Christmas now, but you can as ever still get in touch with me should you wish to. Perhaps you have an idea for a case or any questions or queries about the show or an episode. I'm always happy to be in touch and I shall always respond back. I'm back very early in the new year and I'm looking forward to the next round of The Enthusiast. So until we speak soon, I've been and still am Paul the true crime enthusiast, wishing you and yours a very happy Christmas and all the very best wishes for 2019. Thanks very much all, take care and be safe and I'll catch you very soon. And as it's Christmas, don't have nightmares, do sleep well. BBC, you are still twats. Goodbye for now guys. (laughs) 